This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Changing culture and structures at the same time is hard. But we make gains and they're incremental and I get impatient and I worry too. But it doesn't stop me from pushing. Welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court and the courts. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things at Slate.com. And we are in this interregnum between President Joe Biden's announcement of Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, as his nominee to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court and her confirmation hearings that are going to begin in just a bit over a week. We were trying to think about who our absolute dream pick would be to discuss this truly historic moment, and we just decided to take a flyer and ask Anita Hill, who in so many, many ways is a trailblazer on big, big issues around race and justice and accountability and gender, and she said yes, and we're going to be hearing from her in just a moment. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members are going to have access to our special extra bonus segment, and this week's Amicus Plus segment is going to feature a conversation between Slate Senior Jurisprudence Editor Nicole Lewis, we've talked to her before in Slate Plus, and of course my wingman Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the law for Slate, and they're going to talk about all the things that are happening at the court that we couldn't get to in the main show including a shadow docket near miss for federal elections and a big unanimous decision in a case concerning the Armed Career Criminal Act that landed on Monday. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash amicus plus. Membership gets you access to lots and lots of cool stuff like ad-free podcasts and never hitting a paywall at Slate. And your membership, of course, supports all the work we do here at the magazine. Thank you, as always, for that. So go to slate.com slash amicus plus to sign up. But now, Professor Anita Hill. So I guess I will just say that Anita Hill needs 
absolutely no introduction. In 1991, as a young law professor, she testified that Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her when he was chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That testimony changed the course of history, certainly changed my life. Since then, she has written multiple books, including her most recent book called Believing, And her new podcast, Getting Even, launched on March 4th. And as we think about what it means to seat the first black woman justice on the highest court in the land in American history, and what these upcoming confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson portend, and what the composition of this court signals for racial justice, gender justice, justice generally in America, it is just such a treat and a pleasure to welcome Professor Hill to the show. So, Anita, I know I did not do you justice with that introduction. There's lots to say, but I cannot tell you how thrilled I am, particularly this week, to have you with us. And I'm very thrilled, not only with the introduction, but of course, I'm thrilled to be talking with you. So first, congratulations on both the book and the podcast. And and I wondered if you can tell us, if you can, what it is you're trying to surface with these new fora. I can remember, I think, the first time I ever interviewed you, which was a long time ago. I think you were kind of hoping that this whole sexual harassment in the workplace thing uh, was not going to be perhaps your entire life's work. And maybe even you were hoping that we'd be a little further along down the path. So Tell me where you are now as compared to where you were, you know, in 1991 and maybe even where you hope this moment for you, both with the podcast and the book, will take us. Well, first of all, um, let me just say that I think we are farther along down the line in terms of sexual harassment and other kinds of gender violence. We are farther along in the sense that there's greater awareness. Public awareness is really at at an all-time high, Uh, an awareness that the problem exists, awareness that it's pervasive, and awareness that it is causing immense harm. Now, the thing that we have to do is to have the courage, if you will, but also the wherewithal to come up with solutions. And that requires structural change. And structural change is hard to explain, let alone hard to accomplish. So we have a lot of work to do, but the first step really is to get people to understand the seriousness of these issues and how it is impacting just about everybody um, in this country. And do you worry, I know you don't worry, but maybe this is me projecting, I I do worry that this happens in stutter steps, that there is awareness and then there are backlashes, that there are moments of amazing public salience and public commitment to the project. And then it seems to detonate in our faces and we get to these awful, awful, I'm thinking of the lock her up moment around Christine Blasey Ford after she testified. And so I guess... I don't think this is a linear path, and I wonder if you think at this moment we're in one of those stages where we are progressing and learning, or whether we seem to be slightly stalled out, even in the backlash to the Kavanaugh conversation. 
you know, I I understand that that you know one step forward, you know, two steps back or two steps forward, one step back. I mean, it's not linear. You know, talk about the arc of a moral universe. I mean, I don't even think of it as moving like an arc. I think it moves more like a stair step. You know, you and the the risers, if you will, are you know at different elevations depending on the time. Sometimes we really do surge forward. And I think that's happened over the past 10 years. The surge forward, though, cannot be limited to awareness. That's the problem. We got to get in there and really understand how these cultural ideas and and assumptions that we make about the necessity for change are embedded in our structures. And so changing culture and structures at the same time is hard. But we make gains, and they're incremental, and I get impatient, and I worry too, but it doesn't stop me from pushing. And and, I mean, that's really the key. The other key is to realize that we now have a lot more people working on it. I mean, since 1991, not only have we developed a generation of educators that are devoted to this issue and researchers who are devoted, there are people in leadership in the U.S. Senate and who are devoted to this issue and in the House of Representatives. So we have made gains in that respect. People are talking about this issue, not enough, but the leaders are talking and thinking about these issues in, in terms of the laws and policies that need to be put in place. So we are beginning to have some of the things that need to come together to make the change. We even have, and I shouldn't say this as though it's some exception, but we we have leaders in business who are saying it's time for a change because they understand that the problems in the workplace are really hampering their productivity. So I think there are all kinds of ways that we can think about why now is a different moment. Even though I continue to worry that we need to change, um, realizing that this is a different moment, you know, sort of helps me to control my anxiety. I, I want to ask you one other, maybe framing question, which is I'm always struck by the ways in which there feels like there's this unfortunate switcheroo where we talk about sexual harassment, we talk about workplace discrimination, we can talk about all sorts of race and gender issues, and it always feels as though we're having a conversation in this feelings space, right? You hurt my feelings, I was sad, I was offended, you were assaulted, you know, that's so, but I'm sorry, the the, the whole sorry thing, I know you more than anyone have strong, strong things to say about the I'm sorry piece of this, but I guess I'm always so fascinated when I talk to you or when I read you or hear you speak because you don't operate in the feeling space. You always operate in the system's place. You always, since I've heard you speak, talk in terms of systems, formal structures, policies, very clear and coherent architecture that is the farthest thing from feelings. And it's just so interesting to me, and I really noticed this after the Christine Blasey Ford testimony, 
that it was almost as though we were watching a split screen where she was allowed to have all these feelings and then all these Susan Collins speeches about their sorrow, about her feelings and how sad that she was sad. And none of it changes anything. And I'm always struck by the way in which you don't really actually have a tremendous interest in talking about sadness and sorrow and suffering and pain. Your interest is just like, let's get some structures in place so this stuff doesn't keep happening. And I always just feel like I want to ask you that question of how is it that we got into a world all these years, even after you had your experience in 1991, where men get processes and women get feelings? You know, I think that is part of, clearly part of the issue, that somehow there's this presumption that all this is about is hurt feelings for women. And even in the early sexual harassment cases, you know, you heard courts saying, you know, it's too bad this is happening, but, you know, they'll get over it, basically. And I know that the feelings matter to me. I mean, I've heard from thousands of people who have been harmed and are deeply saddened about it. But we cannot stop with pacifying people by saying, I'm sorry, this happened to you. We need to be saying, it's time to do something about it so that it doesn't happen again to you and it doesn't happen to somebody else, the next generation of people. That's what, you know, people ask, what do you want your legacy to be? I want my legacy to be that we change so that we don't pass this on to another generation. And so that to me, is important. We want to be able to treat the trauma that people experience. We want to be able for people to understand that their feelings are real and deep and meaningful. But I have talked to so many people who have those feelings, and they are looking for ways to take care of themselves. But they're looking for our leadership and our systems to take care of the problems in the way that they need to be taken care of. You know, you had asked me earlier about why all of this, why the podcast, why the book, why the op-ed pieces. You know, I grew up in a home, my mother was born in 1911, and she had 13 children. I'm the youngest. So, you know, I saw a generation, maybe two generations in terms of her lifetime, of not having a voice not having a platform. And I have a platform. I have an opportunity to talk. It didn't come through what I would have liked for it to come through, but I got here. And so I want the podcast to be able to reach a different audience, frankly, about how we can really begin to fulfill the meaningfulness of what equality is about and how we can get beyond this uh, stagnation that I think we're feeling in terms of equality. So yes, gender violence is about equality. Discrimination in education and in, in the workplace, it's about equality. But we need to have a very expansive mindset when we start to think about all we will need in this country to ensure that another generation experiences a much fuller and much more robust sense of what equality is. And um, I'm trying to bring those ideas to the front of people's minds. I think it's a way of not only informing people, but encouraging people who are saying, why aren't we further along? And that's a real question. 
And I think we're not farther along because we are not thinking expansively enough about what we need to get even in this country. It's such a great segue to my question about this nomination, which is it ticks every box you just mentioned in terms of equality and in terms of justice and in terms of moving forward and progress. I mean, this is by any metric an extraordinary moment, and yet it's already bogging down in I just think incredibly fatuous conversation about, you know, Joe Biden and affirmative action and quote unquote lesser black women and all of the ways that Judge Jackson, who we just keep saying the same thing over again, has every single qualification that John Roberts had plus years on the bench. And still it's not enough. And I guess I wonder what you see when you look at the discourse around this nomination and around this really singular nominee, what parts of it do you feel are heartening and bolstering and moving us forward? And what parts feel like they are just dumb vestigial conversations that I cannot still believe we're having in America in 2022? Well, you know, you raise so many good points, but let me just start with this idea that Joe Biden announced, I will select a black woman for the Supreme Court. And there was this hue and cry about, oh, this is affirmative action or preferential treatment or reverse discrimination. I mean, that's part of the rhetoric right now, right? Any effort to achieve equality or full representation or justice is distorted to become something evil or bad. In fact, I think Joe Biden was saying out loud what other presidents were thinking, but keeping to themselves, because we knew they were going to nominate a white man, or we knew they were going to nominate a white woman. So why not just say it out loud and get to the point of what we really need in this country, especially on the judiciary? And that is that we need better representation. You know, people think about this nomination and they think, well, you know, she'll probably be a liberal. And what's it matter? It's still talking about a court that is overwhelmingly conservative in terms of votes. But there's more to judging than the specific outcome in a case. And the Supreme Court has an opportunity to really articulate to the public the reasoning behind these outcomes, what the thinking is that goes into these conclusions, and to articulate in many of their opinions what the impact of their decisions are. And I think the public wants that. They also, whether it's in a majority opinion or a dissent, they want to know how the judges got to their decisions and how it's going to impact people. And I'm really excited that Judge Jackson has said that she thinks about how the law impacts people because the public needs to know that now, you know, Confidence in the Supreme Court has been declining since 1991. 
And we need something that can restore that. I think we have that in a Judge Jackson. Uh, we have it in a Sotomayor. We have it in Elena Kagan. We have that in many ways, that possibility of getting people to understand that this court is about them in their lives. So I, I, I'm just very grateful for this moment because it is an opportunity for us to have an open discussion about the direction that this court is taking in a country that is increasingly diverse, where the perspectives of people who are here and will be affected by the law need more and more to be represented. They can't be presumed to be what they were a hundred years ago. And we have the chance, maybe not to get the court there right now, but to start the conversation about where we as a people think the court should be. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's return now to my conversation with Professor Anita Hill. And I want you to weigh in on this because this is something that really, I do feel like you carry this in all you're thinking about the courts and the law, which is there's a a really not very smart take, which is, um, oh, Democrats are mad at the court. They don't like the outcomes. That's why they talk about packing the court. That's why they talk about the shadow docket and legitimacy. And that it's really important for progressives to tear down the legitimacy of the court because they just don't like the results. And you are the antithesis of even that cartoon about somebody who thinks about the court. You have, I don't think, any interest in the court losing legitimacy. I don't think you have any interest in having a court that uh, decides the 2024 election and only four people abide by it. I mean, I think you are firmly in the camp that it is in everyone's interest to have a legitimate court. And I think that that is such a knife edge to be on, to both have descriptive critiques of how the court is deciding cases right now, and at the same time be 100% in the tank for a court that the public can abide by and accede to its legitimacy. And I just want to give you a second to talk about it, because when I 
think of people who could have for a very long time just flung their arms up and said, you know what? Yeah, the court sucks. I'm going to be a dentist. Like you're on that list, maybe not a dentist, but certainly not to continue working in this lane of thinking about law and justice. And so I guess I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this critique that is, you're just trying to trash the court because you don't like the outcomes. That is not what you are talking about. Well, it, it absolutely isn't. It's not what I'm talking about. And maybe it's because, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a teacher. Maybe that's so much part of my profession. I critique my students all the time. And it's not because I want them to fail. It's because I want them to flourish. And so that is why I critique the court. And I see the direction that it's headed in the public esteem. And I realize that if we cannot have confidence in the court, we can't have confidence in the law. That doesn't mean that the law needs to stay the same or the way it's enforced is appropriate. But it does mean that there has to be something that people can count on to having integrity, to being true, to reflecting the public interest. And for me, that is the law. I mean, politicians rotate, presidents rotate, but the Supreme Court is established the way it is to provide some kind of anchor. So, for example, you know, when it comes to my confidence in the court, I am not naive. I know that the court has made some colossally bad decisions that have impacted my life. I mean, I don't have to go back to Plessy versus Ferguson when they said separate but equal is completely fine in this country. But, you know, that's one place where we all, I think most of the people can agree, that was a wrong decision by the court. So I know that the court can make mistakes. It's not flawless. But in the end, I believe that the court and the legal system is in the best position to provide the kind of integrity and the kind of structure that can move us toward a greater country, a greater society, and can influence all of our systems in that same direction. I think I want to ask you another version of the question I asked you about how sometimes women are relegated to having feelings. And this version is, I'm a little bit mindful of the fact that we are about to have, assuming that Judge Jackson is confirmed, a court in which we have, for the first time in history, let's stipulate four women, that's extraordinary, uh, and for the first time in history, three women who will persistently be writing dissents. And uh, they will be, I imagine, in the in the voice of what we get from Elena Kagan, you know, absolute fury uh, in Brnovich on voting rights, uh, on Sonia, Sonia Sotomayor, absolute fury on police misconduct, absolute fury on race discrimination. And Judge Jackson, who I actually think probably is going to be a more temperate writer, at least initially, but again, writing from a place of sadness, loss, anger, frustration. And it feels to me as though, I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts on what it means that we are going to have this, in some sense, historic court uh, with real, at least close to gender parity, and that there is a just a 
depressing fear I have that the women are going to be relegated to the land of feelings ball, dissent, upset, and fury again. And I just wonder, as somebody who thinks about race and gender the way you do, what it signals that we are going to have three justices dissenting all of whom are women. I think it's important. I think dissents are important because they can become future majority positions. But I hear exactly what you're saying. But part of what is coming through in your commentary about women is this presumption that when men write their opinions, that they're, it's all about logic. It's not about their feelings. It's just, a, you know, it's rational thinking that's leading them there. There is nothing in any of these opinions that I have read by Sotomayor or Kagan or Ruth Bader Ginsburg to me that says, oh, these are all about, you know, that touchy-feely women kind of thing. They are clear, brilliant thinkers, and I think a Justice Jackson will be the same. They're not going to all think alike, which is also wonderful, but they are going to be saddled with this label of being emotional when, in fact, all of them are being emotional. The men are too. They're just pretending that somehow that there is no emotion behind what they're saying. So I think that's just a, a prejudice that we have. And we need to understand that their actions are based on their feelings, just like any judge's actions are. And there's nothing wrong with that. What would be better is if they were transparent and told the truth about it. And I think women are more willing and able to tell the truth about where they're coming from. And I think that people respect that. They're not trying to hide from those feelings and convince people that, oh, it's all about my brain, because they can admit that these decisions will change lives. And we ought to have a court full of judges and justices who understand that. So first of all, Anita, thank you. I've never enjoyed being checked uh, and, and corrected more than that is just such an important, it's really, really an important corrective that, you know, when women write from a place of anger, it's seen as uh, emotional. When Justice Alito writes from a place of anger or Justice Gorsuch, we see that as reasoned and principle. And you're quite right. That's completely my bad to even begin to dip into that kind of thinking. I don't think it's so bad. I think you're reflecting what uh, will be the uh, assessment of those opinions. And it seemed, you know, it's seen as something that's a negative when, in fact, it is important. It's important. And maybe if we were more honest about it, the public would have more confidence in the court because that's what they care about. Right. And I think that's why, in a deep way, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg became the notorious RBG, in a sense, it was when she allowed herself 
principally in dissent, I think, to really reflect. I am deeply dismayed. This is ridiculous. You know, skim milk marriage, whatever it is that she was doing and saying, uh, that suddenly didn't sound dispassionate and logical and as though she had come from the planet Vulcan, right? She really let herself inhabit her own experience and her own feelings. And I think you're right that there's some virtue to that transparency and that the public really falls in love with that. I mean, when the public hears Justice Sotomayor just absolutely wringing her hands because things are going askew and we're moving backwards in her view, it doesn't just resonate because it's quote unquote emotion. It resonates because we see that these are real people really dredging from their own experience. And that's the transparency you're describing. Well, and Justice Sotomayor is a perfect example of dealing with dissonance, if you will. I mean, she is a former prosecutor, but she is also very clear that she wants the criminal justice system to be responsible She's not, you know, let's prosecute at all costs. She wants fairness in the criminal justice system. As a prosecutor, she realizes that the system is only as good as it is fair and balanced. And so I think it's really important for us to really value the fact that she is dealing not only from her perspective as a prosecutor, but she is addressing the issues as a person who is a member of the bar and who is seeking justice across the board. And when we turn to what <laughs> you're buckling in and expecting from Katanji Brown Jackson's upcoming confirmation hearings. And I want to hear what you're seeing in the ether and what you're thinking about, but I think I want to frame my question this way. She, when uh, President Biden tapped her, talked about standing on the shoulders of Constance Baker Motley. I know you have spoken about um, Constance Baker Motley yourself recently and that you think about that legacy. And one of the things that I, I wish you would give us a moment of your thoughts on is this notion that she had to recuse because she was biased, right? Because there's a built-in bias to being a Black woman that means that you cannot sit and judge fairly. And I think, you know, we've seen it in other contexts. You know, we've seen uh, litigants try to get uh, gay judges to recuse, right, in, in, in LGBTQ rights cases. Give me your thoughts on this question of judicial objectivity and the conversation around race and gender, and that no matter what you achieve in the world, you're always biased because of who you are. Well, the, the presumption is that, you know, because of your skin color, because of your biology, your anatomy, there is a built-in bias. And the even worse part of that presumption is that if you're a white male, then you don't have any of those biases, that whiteness and, and, and male genitalia uh, really is just a reflection of your lack of bias. And of course, in that presumption is some built-in prejudice. And so we need to understand that 
the standard that we are applying to objectivity doesn't exist in reality. That there are not people who come in with no perceptions, no bias, no differences in their thinking. But the question is, have you actually assessed your own bias? And understand that, in fact, you bring a perspective and understand how that that perspective can be valuable in some instances and other instances can actually be harmful to the judicial process. But if we allow white male judges to just presume their objectivity, then we are not getting the best judges because the best judges will be constantly questioning their objectivity and testing it. Unfortunately, women of color, women generally, and I would say even black male judges or men of color have had their objectivity questioned throughout their lives. And so to not recognize that objectivity, it's not owned only by white males, then that the standards that we assume are not real standards. And what we should be looking for is for people to understand what their biases are, what their prejudices are, and being able to put them aside in ways that allows them to think very clearly about what the law is, as well as to think about what the outcomes will be and what the impact will be. All of those things are very difficult. All of that juggling is difficult, but it's important and it's something that we should be welcoming. And that's why we want judges that have that ability. That's why I was talking about Sonia Sotomayor, because yes, she brings in her background as a prosecutor, but she's not stuck with that perspective. She's able to understand other perspectives, perspectives of the accused, as well as the prosecutors in cases. Let's talk more with Professor Hill about equality and why we need to take a long, hard look at our systems, including the confirmation system, after a word from our sponsors. Let's return now to my conversation with Professor Anita Hill. Are you seeing anything leading up to these confirmations that makes you feel sanguine that maybe we are going to have the conversation you just laid out, that we are going to have a sane, coherent conversation about Judge Jackson's accomplishments and her merits and her judicial writing and her achievement? Or do you think we are hurtling toward yet another confirmation hearing that gets in the loop of the wise Latino woman conversation we had around Sonia Sotomayor. Yes, well, that all depends on the we. (laughs) Who is the we? Is the we the Senate Judiciary Committee? I mean, perhaps we will have some of this conversation in front of the public during the testimony that will be brought, including not only by Judge Jackson, her testimony, but also the others who are going to be called to comment on her ability and fitness for the role. But I think right now, because we have all of these different platforms, 
we have ways that that conversation can take place and go as directly to the public as the hearings themselves. And it is for us, whether it's in media or commentary or reporting, however, to make sure that that conversation is happening. I don't know with politics being as they are that we can have it completely in the hearing room, but there's nothing to stop us from having it outside. And does that lead you to think, and I I know you have a lot of feelings about the confirmation process and both the failings in the process you were involved in and then the failings I remember your op-ed saying, here's how to fix it before Christine Blasey Ford testifies and none of your fixes, uh, none of your fixes, in in my view, were taken seriously. But the process writ large feels to me very much like television and spectacle and sound bites and puffery and just pretty toxic performance art. And, and I know you and I both feel this is not the way you give Article Three lifetime tenure to the nine justices who will um, decide the law of the land for decades. But do you have a sense of things we, and this is, I am now using we to mean all of us, could do to take some of the oxygen out of a process that just feels like a wood chipper on both sides that just feels as though, you know, there's a part of me that just wants to wrap Judge Jackson in bubble wrap and maybe, you know, give her a bourbon and wish her the best, but it's going to be terrible because it's always terrible. And I guess I wonder if you have thoughts about what could be done, or is it just a reflection of the culture, the moment, the polarization, this is how we roll now? Yeah, I, I think one of the words that you didn't use when you talked about the theater uh, was that it's political theater. And it's politics that don't rise above, aren't elevated enough to see the court as something that in this country needs to be protected from the politics. We're not there at this moment. And I think the evidence of that came very quickly, even before Justice Jackson was named. There was evidence that this was going to be political theater. All of the accusations about preferential treatment and reverse discrimination just showed that they were going to start throwing political bombs to derail this nomination process. So we're already coming into this with that in the background. I think if we could, if I had a correction, it would be to keep in mind two things. One, the sanctity and integrity of the court. And two, the need for the public to understand the importance of this body to their lives. The third piece of advice would be to save the politics for elections. I don't have any doubt that they're going to ignore those three things, (laughs) just as they ignored my advice on how to handle Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. But if we can start to get 
our um, senators and committee members' minds on why this nomination is important to the people of this country, why the court is important to the people of this country, and how it can become a moment where we rise above politics. If we can get there, I think that we will have a hearing that will be fulfilling, and I think there will be absolutely no basis, if I have to you know, predict, no basis for denying Judge Jackson's uh, position, a position on the Supreme Court. Anita, I think I want to end by talking about what we started with, which is both the podcast and believing are a moment in time where, as you know, we've made really tremendous progress. If nothing else, we haven't fixed the systems around, uh, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace, uh, you know, sexual violence, all the ways. And you, you, I've heard you talk about this so often. It's endemic. It's everywhere. It's in the military. It's in the academy. It's, we just need to be very mindful of the fact that this is not one-offs uh, that we hear about when we hear about Hollywood or where we, when we hear about the judiciary. But as you've noted, awareness has really changed. And I'm really struck by something um, you said, uh, I guess in your podcast, talking to Mark Lamont Hill, talking about equality. And you said we're still operating within a 1964 version of equality. And I guess I'm really curious what a 2022 version of equality is. In other words, when you think about I know you resisted the word arc of the moral universe, but when you think of the arc, where do you see it going? What What's the yellow brick road for Anita Hill? <laughs> what are we shooting for if it's not these battered, broken systems that aren't great? Well, first of all, I'm looking for us to move to an understanding that the issue of inequality is layered. You can't simply say, oh, hey, we're going to admit people into colleges and universities. And once we admit them or give them an opportunity to be admitted, then we have achieved educational equality. And I, I'll use the example of issues of sexual harassment. We have begun to admit women into college programs in record numbers. But what we haven't dealt with is the fact that their educational lives and experiences can be completely derailed by sexual assault on campuses. That happens to one in every three women and is higher in various identity communities, even beyond the one in three. So we haven't achieved equality. We seem to be content with just opening the doors and letting people in and not paying any attention to the experiences that they have that are detractors from a true equality. So that's where I want us to be right now. The 1960s version of equality would be, well, we'll give them an opportunity, we'll admit people, and we don't have to pay attention to what happens to them after that. 
And that's where I think we, we need to be moving. What is going on inside those institutions once they arrive that prevents reaching true equity, true equality, true fairness. So that's my example of where I think we should be by 2022. There are other examples, whether it's workplace examples or the framework was set by a 1964 act, passed with bipartisan support. Not sure what happened today, but it did at the time. But that was just the beginning of our understanding of what equality would and could be in this country. And we need to move to a deeper understanding. And before I say goodbye, a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are feeling a little dispirited. (laughs) That was probably the understatement of my lifetime. But they're feeling as though we're not moving in the direction you're describing, and we're not even moving in the direction of fulfilling that 1964 promise. Tell me what it means to you in the arc of your lifetime to see the first Black woman elevated to the U.S. Supreme Court, and tell the young women particularly who listen to this show and are just trying to figure out how this all is going to work out what this really, truly singular moment in your life history and the history of the country means to you. Well, in that sense, I would like to not only speak to them, but I'd also like to speak to the senators who are going to be vetting her. This is a crucial moment. We have been telling our young people that if they do all the right things, if they do the things that Judge Jackson has done, that go to school, get good grades, be on law review, clerk with a Supreme Court justice, spend time doing public defense work, all of those things that we say are the things that you do to prepare you to have whatever you want in life then we have to acknowledge that in this process. And that's what we should be looking for. And that's what our young people want and need to see, that we have actually been telling them the truth when we say you can be whatever you want to be if you do the right things to get there. If we take a detour and reject Judge Jackson, then I think we will have reason for our young people to be discouraged. And they should be discouraged. But I also like to tell young women in particular that this one decision does not determine the direction that the country will take. Well, it certainly doesn't determine the direction the country can take. That, to me, is the lesson of 1991. Because after 1991 and what happened with me, after 2018 and what happened with Christine Blasey Ford, the country could have said, okay, these issues no longer matter. We're going to continue to allow people to be left out of the conversation. We're going to continue to allow abuse. But we didn't. We saw this as a moment to disrupt 
a whole lot of myths and lies and to try to get to the truth of our experiences. And whatever happens with the Jackson confirmation hearing, I have every confidence that we will continue to look for ways to get to equality. Anita Hill uh, needs no introduction, but if you have not read her most recent book, Believing, you need to read it. And if you are not listening to her brand new podcast, Getting Even, you need to be listening. And in all things, uh, at least in my life as uh, first a law student, uh, young uh, law clerk, and later briefly terrible attorney and journalist, uh, Anita Hill has been a really amazing lodestar for me, not just uh, on this question of if we fix systems, we can get there, and it is painstaking and boring and technical, and still we do it, but also on this much, much larger question of having faith that if we fix systems, it's going to be better for all of us. I cannot thank you enough, Anita, for giving us your time, and I will look forward really, really to the next spectacular thing you do. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure, as always, to talk with you. It is Women's History Month, and so it feels just very, very apt that we are featuring two huge figures in recent women's history on today's show. Now, you just heard from Professor Hill, but I also wanted to play you a clip from a really great conversation I had on another podcast that dropped this past week. I had the immense honor of being on Hillary Clinton's podcast, You and Me Both, and beyond confirming that we both got into the law because of Marion Wright Edelman, we talked about this big, giant Supreme Court term that we're in the midst of and what it might mean. And I wanted to play you a snippet of our conversation where we turn to abortion and the likelihood that the current national standard for reproductive freedom in the United States, Roe v. Wade, is probably gone either by way of the Texas ban in SB8 or the Mississippi 15-week ban argued in the Dobbs case that is yet to be decided. I think it's gone. And I think in overturning it, the, the only hope that one can have is that uh, they will somehow overturn it based on Dobbs and not SBA Texas because this precedent for vigilantism is just so frightening for the rule of law, for anything that we believe represents order and <laughs> due process. But when Roe is overturned or so totally eviscerated that it basically doesn't exist anymore, what do you expect to see at the state level? Well, so this is also grim news. Uh, 26 states already are threatening to outlaw abortion altogether if uh, Roe is overturned. I'm a little bit worried about what comes after that. And there's two pieces of that that are worth thinking through. One is the precedent that gave us Roe v. Wade. When the court ridicules that, and, and they have ridiculed it, the majority. What they don't, I think, fully appreciate is that it's not just abortion. It is, as you know, uh, the right to contraception mm -hmm. in Griswold between married people. And that 
bucket of privacy, family, uh, integrity, autonomy, bodily autonomy, all the stuff that gave well, us— Well, it's also sodomy laws, sodomy. Well, gay that's marriage. It. Exactly. It's, it's the whole structure that was built on substantive due process, but also a right to privacy, is the foundation for so much of what we have seen in the past 30 years uh, develop as you know rights that women and men can claim. And it's hard to know how radical this Supreme Court is. I think a couple of members truly are radical, and I wouldn't put it past Thomas and Alito to you know, go after gay marriage, go after contraception. I wouldn't put it past them at all because they're true believers. Now, what I can't figure out is, are they true believers for religious reasons? Are they true believers for, you know, a broader right-wing agenda that they believe is where the country should go back to? This is not clear to me, but the fact is they are true believers. Yes, and I think in some sense... We can talk about how wildly pro-business, anti-worker this majority is. Uh, We can talk about religious liberty and abortion or uh, opposition to LGBTQ rights. Uh, We can talk about voting. It almost doesn't matter, you know, whether it's a business imperative or, you know, kind of hot button culture question. The fact is they're all in for all of them. And and it may shift And I think, you know, here's where I say the thing that always makes people's hearts stop, which is Brett Kavanaugh is now the median justice on the court. Yeah, that's that's terrifying. He is one of the (laughs) most conservative jurists. Yeah, but he's an opportunistic conservative. He he's somebody who, you know, decided out of Yale Law School and being a country club Republican uh, that he was, you know, going to go whichever way the wind was blowing to try, you know, to become a federal judge. And the strongest wind was coming from the right. So there he is. But I I don't want to run out of time before we get to another terrifying issue. <laughs> I hope that our, our listeners are, are not listening to this before they go to bed. Uh, that's all I can say. We also talked about the guns cases and we talked about voting. So it was a great conversation. You should have a listen. And I was incredibly honored to be on Secretary Clinton's show. And I should also note that Sherilyn Eiffel, dear friend of Amicus, also appeared on the same show and was incredible talking, as she always does, about empathy, about racism, and about the right to vote. And that's going to be a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your comments. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com. Or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and we will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Until then, hang on in there.